Good morning, YouTube. No bad days. I have my coffee. Uh, beautiful day outside. Midwinter. No, I say midwinter. Coming out of winter. I was just talking to my guest off camera then, and it's a beautiful day. I'm not going to futz around anymore because there's somebody at my front door, and if I hit the little button over here that says ding dong, I will have a look who's at my front door, and it's no other than Mr. Carl Verheyen. Hey, Carl. Yeah, I'm doing fine, man. I'm doing fine. Uh, Good to see you today, yeah. You too, it's, it's, you too. Man, have you been doing any gigs? I, I, just did a, I just did a little applause then, uh, and some of the guests that I've had lately have been really enjoying that because they're like, oh, I miss that, the sound of applause. Yeah, yeah, I know. Well, I just did a five-day tour on the West Coast of America. I started in, I started in L.A., then the gear went up to Seattle and from there down, we hit Seattle and then another place near, near Seattle, Bainbridge Island. And then we came down and did, uh, we had a day off Then we did Redding, California, which is kind of um, cent Northern Central California. And then we did the Bay Area, San Francisco area, a place in Oakland. And that was really fun. It was just great to see people again. And uh, uh, we drew 300 people in Seattle but I heard that a number of my fans that come and see that show from up in uh, Vancouver, Canada, couldn't get in because the oh. border closed. Yeah, from from you know. But why are they keeping Canadians out? They're 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 safer than we are. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. And who was that playing with? Uh, that was playing with my band. Yep. Yeah, we just yeah. So it was. Uh, I took Bernie Dressel on drums. And he's one of LA's busiest drummers. He's pretty, pretty wonderful. And he's got his own band called the Bernie Dressel Big Band, the BBB, uh, and uh, or Bernie's Big Band. And, and it's it's an amazing group. I've played with it a few times. It's really fun. So I, I took a, my usual bass player is a guy named Dave Murata, um, and so he did it. Uh, and then I used uh, except he couldn't do. So he did LA, but he couldn't do the trip. He had a stem cell transplant last year. Wow. From, you know, some gnarly cancer thing. Yeah. And his doctor doesn't want him to fly yet. So he couldn't, he couldn't do it. I took a guy named Tom Child, who's on my new record. And then um, I, brought a, I brought a keyboard player that also plays guitar and sing as kind of a utility man. Yeah. And that was really fun for me because a lot of my songs have, well, almost all of my songs have more than one guitar on them. Some have as many as, you know, 16 guitar parts layered in in various ways. So he could play acoustic or electric or keyboards and, um, you know, very valuable. Because a lot of my touring I do as a trio. Yep. Nice. I, nice. I got a great big rig and I can, I can, I can um, organically change sounds without one cutting off, like, like with MIDI or channel switching. It's really fun. You know, things things bleed over into the next into the next sound, and so, and I'm about to go to Europe uh, for five weeks, and this tour will be with Chad Wackerman on drums, nice, and Alfonso Johnson on bass. So, wow. it's gonna be a real all star trip, man. I'm really looking forward to it. So, isn't it great just playing music and just being able to see the world? through playing music. That was always a goal of mine when I was younger. You know, I didn't want to be a rock star or anything, but it was just like, man, if I could get some travel in and yeah, have yeah. that be on the back of, of playing music. Yeah. That, it is one of the great things. I know it's one of the benefits because at the end of a tour, you just don't, you know, a month later, you don't remember any of the hardships. The fact that there was actually an eight hour drive to get down to Austria for one night. You don't remember that. You remember, well, we got to Austria. We had a great dinner. 
And then the next day we got to lay in and then play a wonderful gig. And you just remember, it was a wonderful hotel by the lake and the people were very cool. And you just remember the good things. So. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. Carl, how did, it, how did it all start for you, mate? What sparked the passion for the electric guitar for you? I mean, as a nine and 10 year old living in LA, there was a lot of surf music shows on TV. There was uh, all the local stations had stuff like, I mean, just surfing shows, half an hour surfing shows. And, and, and the sound, the sound would be like, you know, this kind of a thing. <laughs> and so, I don't know, it, that knocked me out. And then, of course, when the Beatles played on Ed Sullivan, that's when every guitar player anywhere near my age went, forget it. That's what I want to do for a living. And I had some cousins who had, they were older than me. They were three teenage girls and they had posters of George Harrison and stuff on their ceiling and all over their room. So I just kind of went, well, yeah, that's the job for me. And uh, I got my first guitar at age 11 and I really never stopped, never looked back, never thought I would do anything else for a living and just played every single day. I got my first guitar in my first lesson at age 11. Wow. And it got to a point where my parents would have to say, uh, quit, quit playing guitar and go out there and play some basketball with your friends, you know? But I, I, I needed to listen to the radio until, you know, Mr. Tambourine Man by the Birds came along or, uh, you know, something by the Stones or whatever. So I just got captivated at a really young age. Nice. And did you get lessons at an early, early age or did you uh, yeah. learn things by yeah. yourself? My first lesson cost $2.50, and it was from a guy who lived with his parents, but he was in a, in a band called the Peanut Butter Conspiracy. And they had albums out, and they were on the radio, like a local band, right? I got lessons from him for a while, then I moved to another place, then a third place, and uh, then I just started learning on my own. Yeah. But years later, though, uh, I had the real good fortune of being – in a band with this great jazz musician, uh, his wife, and his name was Ron Eshte. He's a local great jazz player, probably getting pretty old by now. Got to be like, you know, in his late 70s, maybe almost 80. But he was kind of a mentor because I would bring his wife home from the gig. And I'd say, you know, your wife wants to do My Funny Valentine, uh, but she does it in A minor. Can you show me the, the cool changes? And he'd go, well... You want the Bill Evans changes or the Herbie Hancock changes or the Herbie Hancock changes that he did with Miles or you want uh, my changes? And I'd say, well, let's start with your changes. And so I'd learn a lot of harmony that way every night. You know, I'd stay up till four in the morning with him just jamming a little bit. And then there was a lot of jazz going on in my early. Well, my early years were all rock and roll and I played in a lot of bands. My little band called Mad Shadow. We, we played opposite Van Halen about three or four times. You know, wow. On the same little bill, you know. And yeah. uh, I remember Eddie Van Halen dropped my Les Paul from about this high into the case, just bang. And I said, Ed, what are you doing? And he goes, oh, sorry, man. And it bounced. And thank God the neck didn't break because uh, those, were, those were a lot of money for a kid, you know. Yeah, so, absolutely. And as, particularly Gibson, which is notorious for the headstock snapping right. off. Exactly. So um, what happened was uh, I was playing in all these bands. And then at some point I was 17 and my parents uh, took us out to dinner 
in a restaurant in Pasadena where I grew up. And as we're walking out after dinner, I see this guy in the bar singing and playing his acoustic guitar. And I went, I could do that. So I asked the waitress, you know, can I audition for, for this kind of a thing? And she goes, yeah, come back tomorrow when the manager's here. So I came back and I, I had learned how to play uh, Here, There, and Everywhere by the Beatles, which is like... That kind of thing, you know, just solo guitar. Yep. And then I sang a few tunes like Crazy Love by Van Morrison and Both Sides Now by Joni Mitchell. And he goes, you're hired and you have Sunday and Monday. And I'm making 35 bucks a night living at home. But he wouldn't let me start for three months until I turned 18. Oh, okay. That was kind of interesting. Then I started and I'm doing that for like about a year or so. And pretty soon he advanced me to uh, Tuesday through Saturday. So I got the $75 a night gig still living at home, going to Pasadena City College, studying music and stuff. And then one day this guy walks in and he goes, uh, he said, I like the way you play. He was an older guy, you know, just some older gentleman. He goes, I like the way you play, kid. Uh, You ever want to get together and jam? And I said, sure. How about tomorrow? So I go to his house and he pulls out some sheet music and I wasn't a reader or anything at this time. And the first chord was F major seventh, right? And I knew that chord. The second chord was D minor seven flat five. And so I go, let's see, here's a D minor seventh. One, two, three, four, five. Is it this? And the guy goes, yeah, but you'd probably want to finger it like this. Of course, this is a much better, thicker voicing. You could use the open string. Of course, if you want the flat five on top, that's got a nice voicing. A lot of people want the flat five on the bottom. You could put the seventh on top, the seventh on the bottom. This is probably my favorite voicing. This is probably the most common voicing. You can put the root on top. This is another voicing. Of course, this is the same as an F minor six. So every F minor six you have. So my brain just exploded because I've never, it was like looking over the wall and seeing this huge plateau of information. Because I already thought I was good. You know, I could play, I could play this acoustic stuff. I could play Crossroads. I could play Stairway to Heaven, all the, the big guitarist, guitar type stuff at the time. But I had no idea what he was doing there, you know. So anyway, um, I started down the long, dark highway of jazz in my 20s. And I started learning standards and, uh, you know, Charlie Parker heads and, you know, Coltrane tunes and Miles things. I learned all kinds of stuff and played five nights a week playing jazz. I even went to Berklee College of Music for one semester and had more stuff and took lessons from a few guys, you know, and... uh, and that's going along through till about 1980. And then in 1980, I've told this story a million times. So if you, if you YouTubers are hearing this, you know, sorry, I'll make it quick. In 1980, I was driving my car at, on Laurel Canyon Boulevard here in LA. And I heard this amazing Joe Walsh solo come on the radio. And it was, um, it was his solo in a tune called uh, Those Shoes by the Eagles. It's kind of an obscure Eagles tune, you know, album cut. I think it's on the Long Run album. And it's in the key of E minor, and it is powerful. I mean, I had to pull my car over going, 
I can't believe the state of rock guitar has come so far since I left off, you know, five years ago in my jazz odyssey <laughs> from Spinal Tap. <laughs> jazz. <laughs> I can't believe how far it's come. And so it hit me like a ton of bricks in that I just needed to learn everything I dig, whether it's country music or bluegrass or rock and roll or rockabilly. And um, I, I, I really, you know, heavy metal. I just learned to bend notes again. I got out my Mike Bloomfield records and my Albert King records. And I said, man, I need to phrase like that. I need to learn that. And uh, I even studied some classical guitar at the time, too. And, you know, just decided that I, if, if I dug it, I would learn it. And I'm still on that quest today. Like, it, it's more for today. Nowadays, it's more for harmony and songs. If you hear a song on the radio that you've always dug, you've always loved it, you go, why the hell don't I know that? I'm going to go home and learn that. And yeah. that's what I would do nowadays. I'd come home and, uh, you know, just figure out, some old obscure Beach Boys tune or, you know, just something that I've always liked it. I don't know why I like it. So I'm going to listen to it and try to figure out why I like it and learn it. Awesome. Awesome. You mentioned before about, you know, the, the, the jazz player throwing you all these different chord shapes and everything and just realizing what you don't know. Um, I've come to realize there's a thing called the Dunning-Kruger effect. And that's people use that to describe dumb people not knowing that they're dumb but it's it's not just that it's the better you are at something the more you realize what you don't know about a subject more you know the more you don't exactly exactly and that's something i've really discovered the opposite side of the coin is some people are too stupid to appreciate how stupid they are yeah yeah exactly (laughs) the same thing exactly yeah yeah um so and that's become like that for me where i've just become really sick of my own playing and um, I'm always looking around at other people who play completely different to me. I, I think I'm just such a product of that late 80s post Van Halen style of playing. Um, mm-hmm. And when I hear somebody else playing jazz or country, which I cannot play a lick of either, uh, mm-hmm. it really pricks my ears up. And um, yeah, it's, it's one of those things. It's just never ending. Yeah, the country thing is really fun to get into because it's real virtuosic playing, and uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of crossover that I learned from playing jazz, um, you know, and from playing blues. Like a blues guy, I'll go, he'll go like, styles that you can you can actually advance the style itself by 
you know, like I listen to this guy, Tony Rice, who's a bluegrass dude. Yeah. And I hear Pat Martino licks. I hear, I hear him doing, you know, like, um, on, in a key of G, he'll go like, uh, and I go, man, that's right out of a Pat Martino record, you know? So he's advancing bluegrass by cross pollinating with other styles. And I'm all for that. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I had, um, Andy Wood on a, a few months ago and, uh-huh. uh, do you know Andy's playing that? From Nashville. Do, yeah. yeah, yeah. And just sitting around before we went live, he's noodling on his guitar and he's playing um the, the crossroads crossroads, but the, the Steve Vike crossroads suite and just oh, flawlessly yeah, yeah. just he's picking and everything. Yeah. And you know, oh, he comes from cool. a from a bluegrass background, but incorporating that kind of thing into his playing and yeah. and he wasn't even trying. He was talking to me, he wasn't even thinking about what he's doing. And I'm just like, Yeah, yeah. Wow, listen to that. That's awesome, man. I love it. Yeah, so. man, you got the coolest lens flare going on. Um, I, I saw you just move your, your camera before, but just before should you did I, that, the sun was coming I, in. It it looks so cool. Should I change it or should I? No, we'll go with that. We'll go with that. That's cool. That's cool. All right. Yeah, I mean, I got. I, yeah, it's it's late afternoon and the sun's right over there. So. Yeah, yeah. No, that, that that's cool. So you you mentioned that you went to to college as well um, to study music. Well, I really didn't. Uh, I got no degree. I went to two years at Pasadena City College, and I was in I was in classes with David Lee Roth and some of those guys. Cool. And it was uh, it was um, mostly it was kind of a classical music appreciation, piano and stuff like that. And I bailed. I left town to go on the road before graduating, so I didn't get a degree. And then I followed a girl back to Massachusetts across the country. And uh, that's where I uh, just just decided I'm going to start. I'm going to start working. I mean, I, I need experience is what I need, you know. Yep. But then um, at the end of a pretty much nine month period, I decided to move to Boston and go off to and go to Berkeley. So I did this accelerated summer program, and that's all the music teaching I've had. You know, I mean, experience uh, college I've had. But but um, I'm I'm a I'm a real self motivated practicer i love to practice and i will uh i will practice many different kinds of ways but one of the ways i like to practice is um i keep a lick book and uh the 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 lick book is just uh let's see should be somewhere here yeah here it is it's just uh it's just a book on my music stand that uh, any musical ideas I come up with, you know, here's just the latest page. It's just a couple of lines. I write them down and I put the chord over it and I put the fingering under it. Nice. And uh, I've got about 28 volumes of lick books. Really? So, wow. Yeah. And the way I do it is I'll, I'll just I'll just play, you know, sometimes I think I kind of find my center as a person in just being able to practice and be by myself and do that, right? So I might just sit down and start playing randomly. Like here's a line in uh, E minor. Now I'm going to play a line in D. Now I'm going to play a line in B7. E major. A major. A minor. You know, something like that. And just let my mind drift like um, F minor. You know, 
know, and just let my mind wander. And sometimes I'll come up with something that you know, sounds like me. And that I'll write down and finger it. Then I'll learn it. For instance, a perfect example, I was playing in F minor. And I came up with this idea. And it's the, it's the minor third, right? An A flat up to an F, up to another A flat, up to the seventh, an E flat, up to the root. So, and I go, wow. That's really nice for F minor seven. Make it bluesy. Nice. Or maybe I could make it a. Integrated into pentatonic stuff I already do, or maybe you know, just that one little lick. And then I'll learn it here. So, you know, just that's just F minor, and that little germ of an idea. Then I go, you know what? That would actually work for a D flat two chord. So, you know. And then I go, you know, if I change one note, this is me looking at my lick book and saying, what if I did this? Put a D, D in there instead of. I'll go. Flat seven chord, so so you just kind of you know your mind wanders. You 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 find something, you start working on it, and then you work it into your playing. That's a great way to practice, and and I write it down. Another thing, I might I might be like uh, the day after a gig, I might be thinking, man, I had this long solo in F sharp minor, and I just ran out of ideas, you yeah. know. I need to sit down on the blank page and write down some ideas in F sharp minor. So I'm kind of thinking F sharp minor seven. Well, I could do this. Uh, and I do that all the time. How about this? That's cool. But I do that all the time. I'm trying to find something new. What if I use an open string like the open A string and go? That's nice. You know, so that line, F sharp, G sharp, and then open A, which gives me a little time to get up to a C sharp, and then go up a minor six, down a minor third, up a fifth, up a fourth. So, so it's just kind of, you know, I write down stuff like that so that, well, here's the premise behind it all. This, this uh, article I read back in the 70s, you know, in a magazine called Contemporary Keyboard, I, some, I found it and I was reading this article by Chick Corea, right? And Chick Corea said, the best of us are only truly improvising 30% of the time. The other 70% were stringing together stuff we've got worked out. Yep. Well, that was a real life-changing sentence for me because I went, man, Chick Corea, that guy has, he never repeats himself. He is just constant ideas, you know. On an A minor chord, he just has hundreds and hundreds of things that roll off his fingers, you know. So I started to think, 
he's got money in the bank that he can draw on whenever there's a, uh, you know, whenever there's a moment when A minor comes around or A seventh comes around. He's got dozens and dozens of ideas that he can pull out wherever he is in the range of his keyboard. And so I started taking that to heart. A7, right? I got one. You know, and if it's and if it's going to be rock, you know, I'm going to change it. And if it's going to be country, I'm going to be change it. And if it's going to be jazz, I'll, I'll move it around, you know. But, uh, you know, anything, blues, all that stuff. <laughs> so, nice. Yeah. Fun. That 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 uh, that kind of practicing, if I get a chance to do it, really makes me happy. Yep, yep. I'm gonna have and to then, take a a leaf from that book and start writing little things down myself and building yeah. up that that lick library. Yeah. So it sounded yeah, to yeah. me like, are, are you um, like when you said F sharp minor? Are you basing it firstly on chord tones as you sort of uh, to set the the, the tone of that? Uh, of that chord first, or are you thinking more in terms of scales? How do you, I'm how do you approach more, it? I'm thinking more of modes, you know. Yep. You know, so so that lick I just played was Dorian mode, maybe. And I don't know if I played the you know what would be the Dorian note, the the, the natural six. It might have just mostly yeah, it was kind of Dorian mode without a six is what I did because there was no there was no no uh, e, D sharp in there, but. Um, a lot of pentatonic stuff because I just love the sound of that, you know, and uh, um, a lot of stuff that that is modal, mixolydian mode, um, Dorian mode, Aeolian mode, those kind of things. And you can analyze players like Pat Martino is a real Dorian mode guy. Eddie Van Halen was more of an Aeolian mode guy. He had that flat six in a lot of his soloing. And, uh, you know, it really gets down to context. If you have an A minor chord going down to F, you're going to play in the, you know, in the key of, well, you could play in the key of F, but if there's a G separating, like in Stairway to Heaven, you're basically in the key of C, because yep. it's the six to the five and the four. Yep. And all that, all that theory is just to show, you know, it's just to explain why what you did sound cool. <laughs> nice, <laughs> nice. Cool. I, I did attend a, a Frank M. Barley clinic when I was quite young that explained the modes uh, oh, in, in, in a great, uh, great way. Yeah. Yeah. Because it was just, I'd always read these articles and they were just throwing numbers at me, you know, Oh, this mode is spelt. Blah, blah, blah. I was just like, Oh, how do I use that? Uh, and, uh, one of the, the big light bulb moments is when he said, um, if you see two major chords a tone apart, that's your four and the five of the parent key. Yeah. And, and that was that's a real, Ah, and yep. now I'll, I'll stumble across songs and go, oh, this is actually in Dorian mode or Mixolydian mode. And Yeah, good for you. That's a really good place to be because, you know, like I said, it's just to, it's all there to explain what sounds right. Yep. And uh, you can get really, really deep into it. And I, I just just this last tour I did, um, the keyboard player is a younger guy than me, but he went to this thing called the Dick Grove School of Music. And I said, uh, what was that all about? And he goes, well, Dick Grove has a very specific way of teaching harmony and, and improvisation. And I go, like what? And he explained th that he has a nine chord family. There's nine chord families and what to play on each one of these things. And uh, as he, he explained it all to me and I taped it all and it was nothing I didn't know or use but it was a really logical way to explain it. Oh, really? 
Yeah, it was very cool, you know, and, and how the melodic minor can work over a dominant and how the harmonic minor, you know, works for like the gypsy jazz thing and how that works. And, you know, it, it, was, it was really, uh, it was really educational for me because I, I like I like to hear other people's take on it. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What did you say that's called? Dick, Dick Groves? Yeah, Dick Groves School of Music, G-R-O-V-E. I'm going to have to look that up because yeah, yeah there's different I, things I, that get, yeah. get explained to you differently and things that didn't make sense. Like when I talked to Tim last week, uh, he didn't have a grasp on what the caged system was and I explained no, I, it to I, him yeah. and he just looked at me and went, why has nobody been able to explain that to me before? I keep hearing it, but I totally got that. And it's just like, well, that's yeah. that's me in my simpleton way. I honestly believe that one should get out of that cage system as soon as possible. You know, I mean, you learn pentatonics that way, right? Yep. Um, if you take the major key of C, you know, C, D, E, G, A, that's the major pentatonic. I figured out one time that the lowest note in that would be an E, right? So I want to I wanna learn it like this. And here's F. And here's B flat. E flat. A flat. And so when I'm doing A flat major pentatonic, it's also F minor pentatonic, right? Yep. Same notes. Yep. They're the same notes. So now having that um, more of a linear approach and more of a, you know, no dark areas on any key throughout the guitar, my F minor lines can be instead of... Be, they can take in the whole guitar. Love it. And love you know, it. You, you these clubs and stuff, and you've seen a guitar player play top three strings, one position, and then move to another position, and then and that's his stuff, right? Yep. I want it to be continuous and connected and you know, phrasing like melodically that way. And so Having worked out that pentatonic stuff, major and minor in all 12 keys, I, I mean, this is many years ago, I set about to learning the entire major scale, which means, you know, do, re, mi, right? C, yep. D, E, once again, E is the lowest note. So I'm gonna go like this. And here's F. And here's E flat. You know, in other words, I'm not looking at it. I just know where everything is, and I don't have a pattern. Yep. Which is great. Like I can play the key of C, like just go up like this, and then be stuck on the top. You know. Or I can go up here and and be stuck on the top. You know, and I try to do all that stuff without looking. You know, just kind of box myself into a corner and say, how am I going to get all the way up to the, the high note? And so nice. it's just good for, it's just good for mental exercise. It's not working on my chops at all. Yep. It's yep. working on, it's just working on my brain to, to, to just get everything dialed in. And once you have those major scales done, then you have all the modes, you know? Yep. 
So are yeah, you taking advantage of the fact that the guitar kind of repeats? Like, are you doing like two string groups and then just moving it to the next two strings and moving it up a, a couple of frets and, and doing that to get that uh, creeping up the fretboard? Huh, I don't think so. I think I'm just kind of trying to find where the next note is and where's the easiest place to play it. Yeah. You know, let's just take the key of, like, for instance, if I take the key of F and it would be like this. There's definitely not the three notes per string because I'm going one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. Only three there, one, two, three, you know, so so it's kind of whatever I can slide to or reach from where I'm at. Um, but, you know, you think about that. All right, that's the key of F. So the Dorian mode would be G minor, right? And I can play the scale like this. Right, I can play the scale like that. But then I kind of want to play it. Learn the same scale that way. And then maybe go farther. And then come up with a line, and the line might be. I suck today. <laughs> find what I'm trying to explain this. Stuff. Sure, sure. Uh, that I think that lens flare is about to overtake us before too long, as as cool as it looks. I got a thing I can do, and tell me if this helps. That that totally helps. Whatever you just did then, did you close a blind? Well, I I made this secondary blind go up while the other. Oh yeah, I look cooler now, and I have a light I can turn on if. Ah, uh, that looks fine. That looks fine. Yeah. Carl, you said about in the early days and uh, rubbing shoulders with with Eddie Van Halen and, and, and David Lee Roth. Did you know back then that these guys are, are destined for big things? Uh, I knew that David Lee Roth was kind of a class clown and, you know, born entertainer kind of guy. Yeah. And uh, I didn't appreciate how amazing Eddie Van Halen was at the time, but... But now I just can't believe how good the guy was. I mean, his his time and his sound and his touch and his his ideas, they were just killer. And if you listen to some of that stuff like, uh, I don't know, uh, whatever that tune is, Beautiful Girl or something. Yep, yep. You listen to that opening rhythm guitar and you just go, God, man, his time is so locked in. Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. You know, I, I took the time to, uh, now that, I have the technology at my fingertips to slow down eruption and work it out mm -hmm. myself. I've seen transcriptions and it's like, nah, that's not right. That's not right. So I took the time to actually learn it myself. And what gets me is some of those lightning fast runs. When you slow it down, how swung it is. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, he, he just had a feel, didn't he? He really yeah. had a great feel. Yeah. I read, I recently read a book that, that was by, it's called, uh, well, it's, it's Ted Templeman's book. And of course, yeah. He produced all those albums, and he he you know he, he got eruption on tape just by accident. He goes, "What wow. the heck is that?" And he just pushed the tape deck on and started rolling tape. Then he didn't think it was much of anything, you know, just him fooling around. But uh, wow. anyway, so yeah, I mean, I've played with a lot of great players: Larry Carlton, Robin Ford, Brian May, uh, wow. Steve Morse. You know, all these heavy cats, and uh, you know, you you can you you can kind of analyze and see. 
if you pay real good attention, you kind of see what it is that makes them who they are. And, uh, you know, whether, whether it's choice of notes or touch or tone or bending or, you know, vibrato is a huge thing, you know? Yep. Yeah, it's funny you should mention Brian May. Uh, I was a Brian May impersonator in a Queen International touring Queen band oh. for for a while, and um, and I was never that much of a big fan. Yeah, you know, I heard the hits on the radio, etc. But when it came time to learning it, and as I say, using the technology available now and slowing things down, looping them, having them speed up slightly, mm-hmm. and copying just the vibrato and everything so it's oh, just got the record yeah yeah it gave, gave me a really new appreciation for brian yeah what a great musician i love him yeah so absolutely. Cool. That, that music really holds up too you know it does so, it does yeah. actually i have a uh, people always comment about the buckethead looking guy back there and that's mm-hmm. actually uh my old brian may wig <laughs> i just needed somewhere to, oh, yeah. to keep it so i put it up there and just went oh that almost looks like buckethead <laughs> yeah yeah it does look like because he has a kentucky fried chicken head yes yes absolutely yeah. now carl you, you're quite known uh as a session player how did that yeah. how did that all come about for you yeah, I did that for a whole lot of years, and I'm still doing it, but not not ten sessions a week. You know, uh, I, I was I was living down south of LA a little bit in a place called Orange County, and that had the ability to play jazz a lot. You know, I was trying to trying to you know play standards and play with bass and drums and keyboards and just just learn, practice all day, play all night, that kind of thing. But um, I realized that I became kind of a big fish in a small pond. And I realized the heavy cats are up in L.A., you know, and they're the ones doing the sessions because it's it's really fantastic work uh, in terms of how the union works and residuals and royalties. It's more of a nine to five job than, a, you know, stay up till two in the morning every night yeah. in a bar, you know, so. Yeah. I started to, I, I moved up there, up, up here to LA area, and it just started to kind of hang around with the cats. And I had a good judgment of character to where I could say, this guy's going somewhere. I'm going to hitch my train to him, you know? Yeah. And uh, I started hitching my train to guys that were doing TV work and movie work and jingle work and record date work. And, uh, you know, you just kind of keep, keep after them and uh, talk to them and, uh, I put together a little jam situation where I could get like Vinny Caliuta to come over and play one day. And then, uh, you know, I'd say so-and-so is coming over, you know, and, and I'd get I'd get some heavier guys than me just so they could see how I play. Yep. And that was a, a good thing to do. So um, I kind of worked that angle for a while. And then I got in a band that was pretty high profile, this kind of R&B saxophone player named Richard Elliott. And that led to another band, another band. And so I was playing a few nights a month or four nights a month, maybe with some high profile bands. And then one day I remember, I remember that um, I get this phone call from a keyboard player saying, I'm here at Craig Saffin's studio. And he wants to know, do you play the Chirango? And I said, how many strings does it have? And he goes, eight. And I said, you got one? And he goes, yeah, he has one. I go, I'll be right over. So I came over and I played on this movie called Stand and Deliver. And I just tuned the charango to a guitar kind of a thing and yeah. figured out how to read music like what he was doing there. And, and um, 
I said to the guy, I said, you know, this movie, Stand and Deliver, it's got this Latin vibe. You know what might be cool is some Santana style electric guitar. I said that because my SG, which Santana was, was playing in his early days, was in the car. Cool. In my car. And I had a little Princeton amp or something. So sure enough, uh, I went and got it and he loved it. And I played on the rest of the movie. And then he said, hey, I'm starting a TV show next week called Cheers. And I'd like you to play on it. And I played on the next nine years of Cheers. And what begins to happen is that contractor who's making the calls, he gets me to another one and then another one. And pretty soon I'm doing a lot of TV, which blossoms into movies, which is even better work. And then on the side doing jingles, which can be extremely high paying because of, if they keep using it, you get paid every time they change the voiceover. And, um, you know, you start to kind of work your way into the record world to where you're playing on different records and stuff. And then uh, what kind of, what sort of killed it for me was I decided that I would, um, I mean, I, I started making my own records and that was in the eighties, but by the late nineties, I started taking my band out on the road. I started to be able to tour, whether it was USA or Europe or whatever. And um, those tours got more and more until, you know, I was out three or four months a year. And the years I wasn't, Supertramp would go out and I had joined Supertramp in 1985. And so they'd go out for four months every few years. And so I started to be gone. And when you're gone, you can't really be that first call guy. Sure. What happens is the guy, they call your, they call the substitute guy. And if he plays maybe on the demo, they get, they got to get him to do the final, you know, and uh, if it's a jingle or, you know, so you start having to turn stuff down. And I remember my wife calling me, I was in Europe playing with my band and she goes, man, you got called for a five day double sessions at Warner brothers, which is going to pay, you know, really good money. Maybe. Well, those five days would have paid more than my entire tour. Yeah, I just yeah. have gone for three weeks or something, you know, because I pay my guys well and I got to rent this, the tour bus and I got to pay for gas and hotels and all this stuff. Right. So what I what I end up with was going to be less than I would have made had I stayed home. But I just kind of sat back and analyzed it and went, you know, I get to play my own songs in front of the whole front row that's singing along to a song I wrote in my kitchen five years ago, that's more self-satisfying and gratifying and just, uh, you know, just righteous feeling than sitting there with headphones reading the music that might go like, you know. <laughs> you know, that might be the cue you're reading and you go, all right, next cue, you know, you know, like on a TV show or a movie date or something like that. So. Yeah. You know, those kind of sessions are well-paying, but, you know, one of our jokes is after you do something like something like that, you know, you go, ah, it's great to play again, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so playing at the height of my ability in front of an audience, uh, my own music was worth it to kind of break away from the studio business. Having said that, in August, I did five sessions on a, project and uh, I worked I, I did another project in July so I'm still kind of toes in the water on yep. the studio scene but um, you know I'm already I'm leaving uh, October 3rd for five weeks and I've already had to turn down a session or two 
in October. So, but it doesn't bother me anymore. I go, you know what? That's all fine. That's, you know, let somebody else have that fun and make that money. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Hey, uh, you mentioned cheers. Is that you playing those guitar licks in, in between? Yeah, yeah. Oh man. For years, I was wondering uh, who that was. Yeah. I mean, I could, I could send you, I'm on Seinfeld. I'm on all kinds of uh, s- s- uh, sitcoms and yeah. stuff like that. And, and hundreds of movies, hundreds of movies and stuff. So, I mean, that's kind of the daily grind. It's great when you get a record date and you can get to play with the Bee Gees or Cher or, you know, somebody somebody famous and get to do that. Um, but the kind of daily grind is sort of the movies and TV and jingle stuff, you know, yep. that, that I was doing. Yep. So, but luckily for me, it was pretty much every day. Nice. I worked in jingles uh, for a while myself. I worked for a company. And you're talking about the the uh, recurring payment thing coming in. Yeah, it wasn't for me. I, I signed all those rights away to the company, unfortunately. But um, that would be a nice thing every time there was a, a revision made. Yeah. yeah. But I, yeah, I know. This guy called me and said, can you play in the style of Chet Atkins? And I was actually playing. I was actually like my wife – we had just been married. She thinks she's married this artist with integrity and all this stuff. And I was playing, I was playing like. And she goes, what are you doing? That's the corniest stuff I've ever heard. That's the stuff my dad listens to. And I said, honey, this is Chet. This is really important. I got to know this stuff. And she goes, yeah, whatever. So she leaves. And about an hour later, the phone rings and it's a guy saying, can you play in the style of Chet Atkins? And I'm going, listen, I am now. Nice. I played something like that. He goes, you're hired. Come down to Capitol Records Studio, Studio B, bring an acoustic guitar. We're going to do the Albertsons supermarket theme. So that was nothing more than just this little ditty. And he had it written in the key of C and it went like. You know, it's like, it's Joe Albertsons supermarket. Like that, right? So I said, well, if I'm going to do the Chet thing, maybe I'll use some open strings. How about if I arrange it like this? figured it out right yep okay I, I did i did a 30 second and a 60 second version of that and i came home and told my wife hey i made 165 dollars today in about 45 minutes doing because that's double scale when you're the only musician on the session you get double scale so she goes yeah whatever it's still corny right <laughs> but little did i know that every time they changed the voiceover the copy I got paid again as if I was there. Nice. And they changed it in the Northwest, the Southwest, the Midwest, the South, the Northeast, the Southwest. So there's like six territories where they're using my little bed and saying this week, it's like this week at Albertsons, toilet paper and Chuck steak, you know, and I got, I just kept getting paid and paid and paid for the next 
four and a half years. I just yeah. got, I just, it was a great scam, you know, what a racket because they use that for the next four and a half years. And man, I was making almost two grand a month every month from that thing. And we bought a house. We went, Hey, this is coming from heaven. <laughs> so great. Anyway. Great. <laughs> so speaking of sessions, did, um, do you do sessions from home? Do you have a home studio set up? I do, yeah. Yep. yeah. It took me a while to get into that because I, I just was, kicking and screaming. And I had this philosophy that my job is to get a sound and a tone and a touch and a feel on the guitar. I'm going to hire an engineer. Yep. So I put together a Pro Tools rig and hired engineers every time I'd get a session at home. And then eventually I did a, this guy was doing this guy's record and sent the engineer home and sent him the tracks. And he goes, I want you to be much more aggressive on the solo. And I go, well, I can't. I've sent the engineer home and he goes, come on, you can do it. So I, I, I just put my feet in, made some calls, asked some questions, and now I can do it, and I really enjoy it. Nice. So. And, and when you're doing sessions from home, are you recording real amps? Are you using simulators? About – so I do, I do record some real amps. I've got a little scene where I can easily set up a mic and do that. And I have about 50 amps here. Nice. <laughs> Without a control. I got way too many amps. Yeah. But – my producer buddy uh, was telling me that we should take maybe the top 25 or 30 of my amps and profile them into the Kemper. Nice. And I go, why? I don't want, I'm not, I'm not that guy. I'm the real thing. And he goes, because there's a market for, you know, your, your, your signature sounds. There's a market for, uh, the Carl Verheyen amp collection, and we could sell it. And so he bought one, brought it out here, and we went to Studio 2 at Sunset Sound, which is where all that Van Halen stuff was recorded, yep. among many, many other things. And we recorded it right in that room with five different microphones. Take each one of my amps. Now, I didn't. I got four Fender Princetons. We just used two because they sound a little bit different. Yep. I got two AC30s. I got five Marshalls. We just took the you know three of the ones that are different. Yep. Anything. I got two Fender Twins. We took one. So we just kind of um, we narrowed it down to twenty-eight, but we recorded it with them <clears throat> with five microphones each. And uh, I'm going, yeah, good. We got a product. This is cool. Then we came home and plugged it into my little home studio scene. And I went, Oh my God, this sounds really good. I can actually use this stuff. Yep. So my, my theory now is that I will always use a real studio to record obviously bass drums and, and keyboards and most of me solos stuff where you just need a room, you know, where you need to manipulate sound in the room. Cause that's one thing that none of these profilers or, or anything they, they just don't do that right sure yep but it, it is really cool to be able to say well i have this little simple part and it's just um it just goes like a like a you know i might be able to record an acoustic 12 string say at the studio or here with a microphone and then use my Rickenbacker 12 string or something to uh, go through the Kemper with some compression and kind of get that. Actually, Roger McGuinn from The Birds, who was a huge influence on me, he never even used an amp. So really? Like, turn, turn, 
Hepburn and Mr. Tambourine Man, all that yeah. stuff is rip rocker straight into a LA 2A compressor. Wow. I didn't know that. You know, with a, with a Rickenbacker. And yep. so it's compressed and right in your face. And it jumps out of the radio at me. Tom Petty, the same way. Those guys use, they just go direct with those Rickies. <laughs> nice, nice. And have you taken to using the, the Kemper Life? Nah. No. I want to hear I want to I want to beat up the ears in the back of my knees, you know, stand in front of amplifiers. I use a giant rig, a four amplifier rig. Oh, really? Yeah, it's it's a, it's stereo clean, like two like what I've been doing is um two 4x12s and they're stereo cabinets. So the outside two sets of 12s are the um the clean sound. And uh, so for many years, I used combos like two AC30s or two twins or a twin and an AC30. And then I just got a couple of heads and I was using a high watt, 100 watt, super clean and a Fender Showman, another super clean amp, right? And um, recently I changed to two Showmans, which is really more of the Fendery sound. Yeah. And those are going through two reverbs and... Um, and uh, a chorus to make him stereo and stereo delay after the guitar. So, and before the amp. So, you know, I, I, I hit this little rack with some of that stuff and I, and go into the two fenders and those are the outside two. The inside two are kind of a wet, dry distortion thing where I go straight into an amp after some pedals. And, um, I use this thing called a Fryette power station. Have you ever heard of that? I've got one right there. They're just amazing, aren't they? They are. They are. Yeah. Funnily enough, I've got a Kemper right here as well. Kemper stage. Yeah. 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 And the power station right there. Yeah. Right. You're dialed, man. So the power station allows me to go in with my straight speaker out, you know, so I'm getting my power tubes on the, on, on the amp, whether it's a Marshall. I love this Dr. Z amps. Oh yeah. I have a few amps and I use one of those for my distortion. The power tubes heating up just sound amazing. So now in the effects loop of that, I can put a little MXR to MXR reverb, but I can also go line out into like a Lexicon PCM 41 studio quality delay. Now I'm at line level, so I need to go into a power amp. And lately I've been using basically the effects return of a hundred watt Marshall. Yep. And, uh, and so, so, so now one cabinet, the inner two, sides of the 4x12s. One has um, the straight amp sound with a little reverb in the effects loop, and the other has the delay sound, but mixed in with the sound. So it's kind of wet, dry, but the dry has reverb on it now. So cool. It's, it's, it's really what you want. It's really what I want to hear. You know, it's, it's, it's exact. I get, I get all the ambience I need and everything. So I've been taking a 100-watt Marshall from 1969, but my amp tech said, you're crazy, man. These things are $6,000. That's the amp Hendrix used. That's the amp Van Halen used. What are you doing? Yep. And I said, well, it's just a beautiful piece of furniture, and I hate to leave it home. So, you know, wow. I got into effects return that was uh, modified that way. So, yeah. You know, that's a lot of gear to be cutting around. But yeah, yeah, I got people for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, I, I, I don't. I, I don't. You know, it's funny. I, I, um, all the gear I have here, I've got two Marshall boxes that I run in stereo and two 4x12s. And when I, I wheel those in, 
people look at me and just go, man, you, you can't you can't use that here. That that's just too loud, too loud. It's like no, it's not about volume. I can actually have those turned down, spread like facing different directions, and I can hear myself all over the stage without being so loud. So it's actually quieter. I know it's it's actually a really great thing to do, and I can do the same rig with two two twelve cabinets that I have that are stereo two twelve cabinets. And I don't like it as much because they're down on the ground and you don't hear what you want to hear coming at you, you know, so. Yeah. But uh, I talked to Eric Johnson about this a little while ago and he, he and I were doing a festival together. And I said, what I really like is to stand on stage with my gear over there to my right. And uh, I like to hear it, what it's doing in the room as opposed to standing in front of it. Yeah. So the small stages when you got to stand in front of it aren't as inspiring as when you can get out to like, in front of the ride symbol of the drummer and just kind of people can see him. I'm not covering him, but I'm there and my rig's over here. That's my favorite, you know, so. Yeah, yeah. I know what you mean about filling the room. Um, when I was doing the, the Queen show, I eventually, instead of using the backline AC30s that we'd always have, I was just using the Kemper and, and I'd have just some AC30s for, for show. But yeah. I would play um, – opening chord of Radio Gaga, which I think is like an FAD9. And mm -hmm. I would just hear the stereo delays fill the room. And that was a, yeah, a nice a great feeling. No, It yeah. is, absolutely. Yeah. Carl, what's the strat you got in, in your hand right now? Oh, this one? Yeah. This is the LSL Carl Verheyen model, which is a uh, basically a strat that's patterned after my 61 strat. But I also have a 58 strat. And so it's got like the back pick of you know, capacity of that. Mm -hmm. And I have a 65 Strat, which is right here. And so it's got the neck pickup of this one. So I really, I really went, I mean, not the actual neck pickup. I had, a, I had to measure the output here yep. and wind up that does that. So this guitar uh, is as close to home for me as my 61 Strat, which has the perfect neck. And um, so I, I'm a big fan of these LSL guitars. They're made here in L.A. And uh, I also have, uh, I've got a maple neck one that's, that's really cool, too. And the, the thing about the maple neck one, it's a little more focused for distortion. Okay. You know, I can, I can uh, let me see if I can put a little hair on it right here. <laughs> That's a great term. Everyone seems to say that. You know, put a, put a bit of hair on it, put a bit of fur around it. I love that term. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So. Anyway, this guitar, uh, I, I, if it's a real distorted thing, uh, I'll grab this one, you know, and so... I'm going to take two of them on the road and an SG. <laughs> nice, and nice. Good so. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm not much the, the Gibson guy, but if I was to play a Gibson, it'd be an, an SG. Yeah, that, you know, because I find sitting sitting down with the Les Paul, like in the studio, they feel like they're over here for me. Sure. They feel like they're, they're not yep. sitting out on my body with, with the ability to reach what I need to reach. I find the SG's the opposite. It feels like it's, it's parked yeah. the other way. Yeah, it's sort of like the high stuff is right in front of you there, you know, mm. the, 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 mm. the, 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 you know that kind of stuff. So, yep. anyway, 
So, yeah, man, it's, 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 you know, it's a lifelong quest to find your sound and find your gear and get, get, uh, get it all dialed in and then your ears change and you want to change. So, yeah, yeah. So Carl, I'm a a strat guy through and through and Mm -hmm. I, I like the idea of a, the vintage six screw, um, it's just, just my mind. There's more contact with the body. Is that what you got there? I I talked to some guys at Fender who said that the two screw bridge was a mistake. They were just trying to copy Kaler and Floyd Rose. Yeah. Right. They were trying to look like those so that the kids would go, Hey, that's the same kind of deal. Yeah. But they, they, they agree that the six screw bridge is the way to go. Yeah. So what, um, a big turning point for me in getting my six bridge, uh, six screw bridge staying in tune and, and feeling good was a video that I stumbled upon on YouTube of yours explaining. Yeah. 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 For people who haven't seen that, do you want to give us a rundown on how you set up your, um, your bridge? Well, this one has, this guitar has a, a plate on the back, but most of my strats don't. I don't know why this one's on here, but basically by adjusting the claw, I'm able to, I'm able to get a minor third on my G string. And I, that, tra- by keep continuing adjusting on my B string, I get a whole step. And I get a half step on my E string. And that enables me to get all kinds of different licks. And uh, what I've been really studying lately and working on lately is double stop stuff, you know, because if I'm in the key of E, I can go, which is basically. Oh, that's great. with it the more i find all kinds of different ways to uh to uh and, and, I've, and i've worked out a lot of those kind of licks let me turn on the light it's starting to yeah sure sure so yeah so um that that became a real necessity to me to have the wang bar on my strats because if i play an telly which i love to do i'm always reaching for it you know and the other thing that's really beautiful is the ability to just shake stuff you know you know just shake a chord with a little bit of uh, vibrato like that i think yeah. that's i think that's really cool well you know, uh- I- when I don't have it, so it, it stands out that the you've got a beautiful touch when using the bar. There, it's some people, okay. some people just grab it and wiggle the hell out of it. Uh, and yep. I, we talked about Brian May before. I I really admire his subtle use of the vibrato bar. Uh, yep. And yeah, that's really nice, man. That pulling up the double stop thing, that is great. That's a cool thing. Yeah, I got a new song that I'm, I'm going to record really soon where it's using that like crazy, you know, because you can go, you know. So 
I did a. All kinds of stuff you can do. It's fun. That's and I'm just, I'm just cracking the surface of it now. You know, just kind of getting into it and going, wow, well, you know, there's there's all kinds of chords that uh, you can bend to, you know, if you if you do it right. For instance, in the key of A, I could just play a D and an F sharp and go. So, so Carl, you, you mentioned working on new music. Where could people find that? Well, I just came out with an album just this year called Sundial. And uh, it was pretty much recorded during the COVID period. And I went to Criteria Studios down there where Layla was done in Miami. And I did a lot at Sunset Sound here, which is my home base. And I even did some, uh, I even recorded some at Sweetwater Studios, which is in Indiana. And just kind of all over the place. And uh, anyway, it's a it's a, a re- very eclectic album in that it's not like a blues album or a rock album or a jazz album or anything. But it, it's all over the place. And I really like that. I mean, I'm, I, I set out to say this is kind of where I'm at in 2021, you know. So, so nice. and I recorded some background vocals by a couple of background singers that I really like. And it's in the title tune. The title tune is called Sundial. And um, the background singers, I, I'm a guy that'll write out the parts for them to sing so that we get to the studio and I'm going, well, try this, try this. No, here's what I want. And if it doesn't work, here's what else, here's what it might work, you know. So I, okay. I try to save studio time and money by coming in very prepared. So these girls, I mean, they just opened up and gave me ooze. And then at a certain point in this title soon, they switched to Oz, you know, from ooh to ah, ah. And when it happens, it's like, it's the greatest feeling. I just, I, I'm, I'm like very moved. And I've listened to this song because we mixed it. So I had to hear it a hundred times. Every time I hear it, I just go, I get the chills and it makes me feel good. Awesome. It's, it's at the end of the tune, Sundial. And the, and the, the tune goes like... Um, it goes like a... That's the vamp, you know. Anyway, it's kind of a quirky, strange little tune, but... It's very different, in other words, but uh, when, when the chorus comes around and uh, you've heard it a few times, and at the end when they start doing those oohs and ahs, it's just magical, man. So I'm well, really that's I, I do a bit of mixing myself, and I can I can actually without hearing the tune, I, I can picture how that would just open things up. There'd be more top end from the ah vowel come in, and that would just yeah. make things open up. Yeah, I sang a lot of background vocals in Supertramp. 
And uh, the way they do it, when there's multiple people doing ah, they want you to go ah, because oh. it becomes ah. Okay. So they, they taught me a lot of little things like that. And like, don't sing ah, sing ah, like Cool. With multiple people doing that, it sounds like ah. Yeah, right. how that happens. So there's that, there's those kind of little things they've got going on. And I, I learned, I learned some good tips from them. Awesome. <laughs> over the awesome. You know, it just popped into my head then that when I was just learning to play guitar and you, you know, you, you first learn a D chord and you start moving things around the little breakdown, ding 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 that's one of the, that's one of the first things I probably learned for myself, just hearing it on the radio and going, Ooh, it kind of sounds like, yeah. We call that hippie chords. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like hippie chords are like when you go. In other words, you've got an open string thing and you're just moving a form around. So. Yeah. Yeah, I know. That's it. Yeah. That's a fun band playing because you start, you, you just pick up your acoustic 12 string go. And 20,000 people stand up right at once. It's pretty fun to see that. Like, wow, you know, the effect that has just A to D, you know, and in that strum, 20,000 people get to their feet, you know, every single night. That's really awesome. Amazing. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. yeah. Pedal wise, are you using much on the floor pedals? Well, I try to keep it to a minimum. I've got an A-B system, you know, yep. a lot. And so that goes to, the A is my clean and it has, goes through a wah-wah and then through the A-B box and then it goes to this one pedal, a Zen drive, which makes my clean a little grungy when I need it. Yep. And then my dirty side has four distortion pedals um, and and that, that goes out to the amp. So, and that's it. But I also have a studio pedal board a super tramp pedal board, a mini pedal board that fits in a computer bag, and a pedal board I don't use too much anymore for my acoustic rig, which I don't bother with too much anymore. It's just more stuff to set up that I don't need. If I'm doing an acoustic guitar show, I'll bring that pedal board. You know, it has a, a few little things on it. But yeah, I mean, um, I'd rather, you know, live, I'd rather not have a delay on the floor and uh, reverb on the floor because sure. I'd rather have those, you know, better quality stuff than a pedal but yep. now there's some amazing you know i'm playing out of a carbon copy here oh love them those are good they're dark you know they nice are color. they are really In, good distortion you know so yep yep i've got one sitting over my little rack of pedals over there and i've got you know all these line six what's that called nhx effects down there and um there's just this something about that carbon copy that none of my digital emulations can recreate yeah, just yeah. that kind of factor that happens on each repeat. Analog thing that happens yeah. Like that. yeah. Yeah. I think pedals that are modeling pedals, I think they're not so happening. You know, I've plugged them in in the studio and had the engineer go, what happened to your sound? And I go, Oh, I plugged this thing in. They go, Oh, get rid of that. You know, so yeah. you know, they're hearing, they're hearing it coming back over speakers that way. So yeah. Anyway, so, so, so you mentioned you have a, a, a studio pedal board. I'd be interested to, to hear what's on that. Yeah, let me see. I could probably pick it up here. I haven't changed it in years. And uh, 
it runs a big rack. And so uh, if, if, if needed. So let's see, it's got a volume pedal and a wah-wah pedal. And then it's got this T-Rex Mud Honey, which is a great distortion pedal. Wow. An analog man king of tone. Uh, Providence Chrono Delay, which is really great in the studio because you can get all kinds of timing issues going. And then uh, a Dark Echo. <laughs> and that's it. And a tuner. And so this thing is kind of more, you know, if I'm doing this, um, if I'm doing like a film date or something where you need every sound known to man, I still have an old 80s style rack that is, you know, 16 space and this will go in front of it. And, and, uh, but I use this, I mean, I'm not really a volume pedal guy unless I have to be, I'd rather just do it with the tone knob on the, I mean, with the knob on the guitar. Yep. So that gives me what I need for, you know, delay and you know, hopefully reverb in the amp. But I also have a little mini pedal board that's super cool. It's just got tiny tuner, distortion, secondary distortion, reverb, and uh, delay and reverb. And uh, that thing, it fits in a computer bag. It's 10 inches by 10 inches. Oh, cool. That really rocks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so anyways. So, so you, yeah, you, man. you mentioned you, you've, uh, you've got the rack system as well. Um and you, you did spy my little ADA back there. I was a rack, rack guy back in the, the late 80s, all through the 90s with my little ADA setup. Um, are you running the effects in that? Is that all going serial or do you, are all the time-based effects going into a mixer? It's, it's, it's one of those deals. It's all going into a mixer thing. And, uh, um, you know, I, I was Bob Bradshaw's second customer ever. Wow. So B B Buzzy Featon came into a club and he goes, you know what you need? Programmable effects loops. And I know just the guy and he had already gotten it. And so he sent me over to Bob Bradshaw and Bob was, you know, building, building racks and actually drilling holes into the, into the pedal boards himself and putting buttons in. And then pretty soon he gets MIDI going. And then that was all through the 80s. And then one time my band was playing at this huge club called Billboard Live on Sunset Boulevard. And um, it was our record release party for like, I don't know, the second record maybe. And so it was early, it was late 80s, I guess, maybe 89 or something. And somebody, so I had my entire show programmed in. Preset zero one is the intro. Zero two is the sec verse, and then zero three is the solo. You know how you do. Yep. And you know, reverbs change, delays change, and the only one who knows about that is me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The only one who hears a difference is me. So some guy, some stagehand tripped over the power cable, and it went off and on the whole Bradshaw rack, and it geeked all the programs. Nothing. Oh. So 15 minutes to showtime, you know, or 20 minutes, or maybe an hour. And I got no, and when you, it occurred to me that playing my guitar straight through all that gear didn't sound good. What you were listening to was the wiggle effects, the choruses and the harmonizer and the delay and all that stuff. So I go, what do I do? What do I do? And they go, well, we have this Fender Twin. And I had a tube screamer and a delay pedal or something in my car. And I plugged them together and we did the whole show that way. Yeah. You know, the whole, the whole concert. And I had all these people going, man, you've never sounded better. Wow. Wow. <laughs> and it was, and then I realized, you know, my 61 Strat through, uh, you know, one of these, 
one of these Fender Princetons, you know, I've got two of them in my little studio here. You know, my 61 Strat right through that sounded better than $60,000 worth of rack gear. And so at that, at that moment, I just decided, all right, I'm mothballing this stuff and I'm going to find some effects that are just simpler. And also, you know, it, it occurred to me while touring with Supertramp in the mid 80s in Spain, if something goes down in New York City or Spain or Italy or South America, there's nobody that can fix that. And so I make sure that my live rig, I really understand the signal change, signal change. Yep. If something goes down, I can bypass this and go straight out to here or whatever, you know, and yep. sometimes carry even an extra amp that can be plugged in in place. You know, so. Yeah, I do that. I've got a little redundancy rig, which is just an iPad. I set up oh, you know, my two big Marshall boxes, all that type of stereo setup, but then right beside yeah. it, just in case, with a with yeah. a, a thirty foot cable connected to it, is a little iPad rig, so that if it goes down, nobody would even yeah, notice. It's just way to go. Yeah. Are you playing a lot? Are you gigging a lot? In, uh, in, uh... With the lockdowns, it's made it hard. Um, I play for a lot of eighties pop artists, uh, Australian yeah. pop artists over here, but they're all based in Victoria. And um, I did have a gig up this way, booked only about a month ago, and it was oh, wow. it was heartbreaking. They had a football game less than a, a mile away from my place here 30,000 people yeah yeah it's okay no one will get COVID at, at the football two days later I'm playing a big show at the the big showroom at the casino local casino mm -hmm. and they wouldn't let the artists into the, the state and it was just like oh my god if that only we were hard. kicking balls around you know <laughs> yeah man what a shame wow yeah no, um, my wife has pretty much got dinner ready. Can I invite myself back on it? Absolutely, time? Carl. Absolutely. I, yeah, I know. Mate, to tell you the truth, a lot of these go for about three hours because it just yeah, keeps going. Yeah, yeah. And I did have a couple of questions put aside there that people had. Oh, uh, go ahead and fire. No, yeah, okay. There's only, only a couple here, mate, so it'll just be really quick. Um, mm -hmm. The first, there was a bit of a, a shout-out on the uh, tremolo um setup thing which we've already touched on um can you talk about a little about your online school oh yeah so uh i have this little cv academy and we've recorded probably 270 videos that are general i mean there's about 10 long form ones that are 45 minutes to an hour but most of them are ideas from my lick book you know like that one i showed you in f minor and how to expand on thing, things and minor, major, dominant lick book ideas. But then I also have uh, chapters on like what I learned from. So I'll say what I learned from Derek Trucks or Dwayne Allman or Eric Clapton or Chet Atkins or Joe Pass or Wes Montgomery or Brian May or, you know, and I, you know, just you take all the uh, artistic signatures, like for somebody like Clapton, it was his vibrato just killed yeah. me. I couldn't couldn't phrase that way. And for somebody like Albert King, it was these incredible major third bends he was doing in crosscut saw. So I'll just talk about that. Like, you know, I could give you a whole story about Albert King, but you know, just this is what I learned from him, the ability to do those major third bends, you know. Nice. And uh, I got a bunch of rhythm guitar stuff on there. I've recently transferred it all over to True Fire. So I have it not only on True Fire, in various levels of, you know, financial, like you can 
get this much stuff for, for 15 bucks. For 29 bucks, you can get everything. And for 54 bucks, you can get an interactive, an in, interactive lesson with me once a month where you send me a video, I critique it, send you a video, that kind of thing. Nice. Yeah. Nice. So, and CV Academy that's on my website, it's not nearly as, uh, it's not nearly as interactive, but it's, it's cool though. You get everything anyway. Yep. So, so you'd rather direct people to Truefire to get a hold of you then? I don't know. I'm, I'm torn because I like, I like the, uh, I like the subscription based thing coming straight to me as opposed to them taking money out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Either way is fine. I'm, I'm good. I might, my goal is to pass on the knowledge and, and make, people better guitar players awesome man awesome and the internet has been great for that i must say uh there was a quick question there do you use the bright switch on blackface fender amps not too often not unless it's a you know people say the 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 bright switch is for gibsons you know it's for humbuckers and and for fender amp fender guitars you don't need it so for the most part, I don't I don't fire that up. Every once in a while, if you got really dead strings or the room seems really dark and dead, I might use it and turn down the treble. But it always adds sort of a little ping to it that I don't appreciate. You know? Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. I, I will let you get going, mate. Um, there was another question about some of your favorite guitar players and amps, but I think you've touched on a bit of that if that person wants to go back and, and watch this. Speaking of which, folks, these little chats are available on your favorite podcast sites as audio only versions. I know some people can't actually watch it on YouTube and um, could just listen as they're working away on things. But I uh, just want to say thank you very much for your time, Carl. It's been great talking to you, mate. Yeah, let's let's do this again. Let's do it, please. Yes, yeah, so I, I will do because, um, as I said, uh, I sometimes have to cut people off after three hours, and they're like, oh, "I've got to come yeah. back." I really enjoyed talking. I so. know I can go all night too. I'm yeah. one of those guys. Yeah, just awesome. Me up. Yeah, I'm so, off. Great. So. Ladies and gentlemen, yeah. thanks to to Carl. Hey, and I'm going to hit my magic button. Uh, I'm going to give a little shout out to um, Summer Cable chicken picks and ec guitars before i go for sponsoring the show and i'm gonna hit my little end screen button which calls up this really cool thing like this go cool.